I've been silent for the past 90 days because of uh, some statements I made concerning the President of the United States. Uh, which were distorted. They were distorted. And, yes. And, what did you and, say, and, Malcolm? Well, I said the same thing that everybody says, that uh, his assassination was the result of the climate of hate. But only, I, only, only I said the chickens came home to roost, and, which means the same thing. Uh, uh, climate of hate means that this is, this is the result of something. And when I said chickens coming home to roof, I mean, uh, chickens coming home to roof, I said the same thing. But did you, did, you did not say that you were glad the president was killed. No, that's what the press said. Uh-huh. What will I look like saying that I'm glad the president was killed? Queen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast whose hosts still have access to Twitter. Can't say that about everybody. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> Come to think of it, I have more followers than a lot of people now. What was your reaction to just seeing all of these institutions just falling over like dominoes? Donald Trump can't get on the internet now. I mean, what? How it, are you going to get thrown off of Shopify? <laughs> Ooh, goodness gracious. What, what a week. So what? what's going to happen like when all this is over? Is he going to be able to get on LinkedIn because he's going to need to find a gig? If if the MAGA people go to LinkedIn, that's just going to be the final nail in the I'm, coffin. I'm, I'm trying to make a little bit light. Coffin, coffin nails. Shout out to mm, MF Doom nice one. from last week. Um, hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this 83rd Opus, 83 opus 83 is that right this is 83 opus uh, 83 of the triloquy podcast continued support for triloquy comes from the american composers forum announcing as i um, have announced an opening for an executive assistant starting at fifty thousand dollars a year again a nice little way to start the new year with a fresh new job i think uh cover letters and resumes are being accepted until the end of the month uh into january so if you want more information on that just visit composersforum.org There's also a link over on the front page of Triloquy.org. Today's guest, Scott, um, comes from the American Composers Forum. A big thanks to Laura Kreider for coming on the podcast. We talk about something that I have been wanting to address for a little while, and I wanted to make sure that I had the right person to help me do it within the context of music. Laura helps me unpack body politics and fat phobia. Is Is that something that you've spent much time thinking about or considering? Because it's relatively new for me. I mainly experience thin phobia. Right, right. And we talk about that and even the privilege therein, you know, the two of us as relatively thin people, COVID mm-hmm. has blessed all of us in, in, in different a, ways. In, in different ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, so I, I think it's important. And just to give folks, you know, a preview, uh, we talk about equity when it comes to race, of course, it's so important. And then on this podcast, we've also talked about how we need to branch off into ableism and just really mm-hmm. making sure we're paying right. attention to every type of discrimination that's out there. Well, Laura and I agree, you know, describe fat phobia as the last acceptable form of discrimination. It's okay to do certain things when it comes to weight and so-called health. Wow. And when you intersect that with race and with ableism, whenever, you know, there's there's uh. so much there. So um, I'm really um, happy and, and grateful to Laura for coming on to help me engage that conversation. Um, 
of course, um, we're going to talk about the attempted siege of the Capitol. Today's downbeat comes from Malcolm X. Um, and we talked about this, Scott, before we cut on the mics. Chickens coming home to roost. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts or, or you know, quick shot on, on that idea? Chickens coming home to roost and reaping what you sow was a theme on my show when I was first back in uh, on Thursday night. Mm-hmm. And um, when I heard, when, when you played that for me, I sat and thought, it sounds like he's saying the same thing that everybody else is saying, you know, that this is a product of a political climate, right? right? Except for he used it in a vernacular that made it sound like he was making light, correct? And then they're going to come after him and use all sort of slurs, you know, um, how can how dare you talk like that? But also when you talk about chickens coming home to roost, coming home to roost, acknowledging right. the cause. Right. So they don't you like... You did this. Right, and they, they don't, don't like want, hearing a black man say that. No, even though he is saying the same thing just with different words, different and vocabulary. And it's the same things... Going on right now. Those chickens came home to roost. And mm. and didn't they? Um, musically. <laughs> uh, I You gotta laugh though at some to point. Keep though, just, yeah. I know it. Yeah. I know it. Uh, musically, uh, I'm excited to, you know, I, I know who, who you're gonna bring in and I think we have some very complimentary things to share with folks musically this week. Yours is more on the ruckus side, mm-hmm. I'm more on the calm side because it's been a lot. Um, we have some accidentals to cover as always. So yeah, let's get into it. Another thug off the streets, Mia Ponsetto. They caught her, Scott. <laughs> oh, a big old sharp to start these accidentals. If you didn't join us last week, we talked about Keon Harold Jr., who is a 14-year-old who was with his father at the Arlo Hotel in New York City having brunch. This white woman named Mia Ponsetto believed for some strange reason, oh, what could it possibly be, that he for some reason stole her phone, accosted him, tackled him, assaulted him, and now um, after running from the law and making it all the way to California, she is behind bars. Now, this of course, came after an interview she did with uh, Gail King. Did you see the interview or any clips from it, Scott? I did. Mm. I did. I'm reading from OprahMag.com. During the exclusive interview, Gail gave Pinsetto a chance to explain her controversial actions, which ultimately led to her arrest. After the NYPD issued a warrant for her arrest, Pinsetto was apprehended near her California home on January 8th. Resisted. The- and and survived it, didn't she? Mm-hmm. That's another conversation. She got belligerent. She was extradited to New York to face charges per the New York Times. Gail began their virtual sit-down by asking Pinsetto to, quote, help her understand why she thought Harold Jr. specifically had taken her phone. That's why I'm confused. Why do you think he had it, Gail said. I'll let y'all read the rest of it. She goes on to try to um, hush Gail, putting her hand in the camera. Thank goodness it wasn't in person because the black Ooh. the black woman Ooh. probably would have came out of one of the producers or somebody, if not Gail herself. Did you herself. see her lawyer? Here go, stop it. Mm-hmm. But it would be really hard not to break a couple fingers, mm-hmm. well, wouldn't it? I don't, I don't, I don't have much there. I, you I, know. I would, pay, I would pay to see her do that to you. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my goodness! Or to, or, or, or a, a family member, a child. You know, again, it's one thing to talk about. Oh, a white woman 
attacking a black man, but that's how easy it is to age black youth and trying them and treating them as adults. You know, we saw this with the Central Park Five, and, we, right. and we're seeing folks try this with Keon uh, Harold Jr. He is 14 years old. He is a child who the, was attacked. The last time that we talked about this, you brought up trauma that he might experience. And in one of the articles that I saw, he is getting therapy for he needs it. PTSD after that. Yeah. He needs it. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, I didn't really need to do a breakdown or anything, just um, law and order. Just, I guess the system works, doesn't it? We have another one off the streets. Uh, I, and I don't even have any music I want to tie with it. So anyway, uh, <laughs> um, we, we're, we're not going to go too far from the courtroom in these accidentals I'm noticing now. Right. The big thing that I would love to talk about is a bit of uh, drama between Tracy Chapman and Nicki Minaj. But before we did that, you brought up something interesting concerning the courtroom and rap lyrics. Before we get to that, just a quick flat fix for me. Last week with Andre Watts, we kept talking about one of the piano pieces he was playing, mm -hmm. and I kept saying Scriabin. It was actually by Domenico Scarlatti. I regret the error. Uh, but yes, the... Um, They're going to cancel you. Right. The article... <laughs> the early the, music community. <laughs> the, this, shh, the article that I found uh, deals with Lawrence Montague, who is an artist that I am not familiar with, but that's not surprising. 27-year-old Annapolis native wrapped into a jail phone, the lyrics of which were later used to argue his guilt. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading this from hothiphop.com. Um why don't you give us some of the lyrics, Garrett? Oh, I'm not reading that. You're not? <laughs> There's the B word in there. Okay. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll read a little bit. I'll be playing the block B, and if you ever play with me, I'll give you a dream, a couple shots, snitch. It's like hockey pucks, the way I dish this out. It's a 40 when that B mm. going hit up shit. Okay, so they said that the rap lyric evidence often has prejudicial prejudicial effect as improper propensity evidence in a defendant's bad character. And they were saying, well, this, you know, he mentioned the gun. He mentioned what he was going to do. There's intimidation. There's all this direct proof. Right. What do you think about that? My issue is that, and I think this is um, someone dissented. Let me let me read a little bit of this as well. At the bottom, it says Judge Shirley Watts wrote the dissenting ruling, mm -hmm. adding that it uses artistic creativity against suspects. She says the ruling essentially permit rap lyrics containing generic references to violence to be admitted into evidence. What I hear her saying is that you can't take art that can be considered abstract and apply it to this, especially concerning uh, considering the racism of it all, sure. concerning what rap is. A lot of rap talks about that. You can't use something that generally has those sorts of lyrics in there to go against an artist when, you know, that is their art. I agree with that. But unfortunately, that's the dissenting ruling. So, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're using that. It's interesting because... Uh, some people might know the name Takashi Six Nine. I, I won't go into all all of that uh, uh, nonsense and and drama about him snitching and all that. But those rap lyrics were used in that courtroom. They were really talking about how it was a different world for this jury to mm. sit in a courtroom listening to Gummo and, oh, and I'm all sure. of, you know Takashi's uh, other tunes. Did, yeah, they probably didn't know what the what um, was hitting them. So that's. One thing, and 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 that led to you know his being uh, arrested and exonerated and X, Y, and Z. But it it feels very 
nefarious, not nefarious, it, it feels very um, pernicious is the word I'm looking mm-hmm. for, because as this article lays out, hip hop artists have been targeted as far as venues not letting them in and, oh, let's let's uh, check into these well, lyrics to see if they're connected to any crimes. It's, it, it's, yeah, it's they, bad. they cover that. That's how they open the story right. is talking about um, uh, club owners having pressure to not feature certain artists because of... And you have to understand that that ecosystem, that level of, of racism manifesting to understand why this is an issue. I'm sure the, the passerby might say, oh, well, if he did it and he's rapping about it, of course, he shouldn't have been dumb enough to rap about it. But you also have to understand the other aspects of, of, of this thing. But really what we're talking about is something that goes through all the stories all throughout the opus here is precedent. Yeah. So this is going to be something that will probably be used much more effectively in the future. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like trying to pinpoint or or uh, really go after somebody because of a lyric that might be nebulous. Right. And they're going to try to apply it to something that's just similar. Especially when you put that lyric, that statement into the context of something being artful. I'm going to hit us. I'm going to relate this and hit hit it a little close to home. Okay. You've heard me, and I can't remember if it's been on this podcast specifically or not, but I have used the phrase, storm the White House, okay? I consider that a way of saying we have to enact change. We have to really force our way through in a way where our voice is being heard. And I consider that, especially if it's a part of this podcast, a part of content that's being created. And so that does not mean come and find me because folks are... are acting up in Washington, D.C., it, it just means I'm I'm doing something artistic and making a statement. I think it's the same thing here. You can't really apply it without considering the racism of it all. But if you were arrested and you had somehow recorded something that included that, mm-hmm. they could then say, see, this guy is up to something nefarious because he talked about it at home. But what other genres face that scrutiny and genres that are also about, let's talk about all of metal, rip your eyes out and whatever y'all be sure, over there talking sure. about. Mm-hmm. That That's the same thing, but we aren't having a conversation about that. And you're not going to tell me that those sorts of artists are less prone to commit crimes because that in itself is a racist statement. So what are we really doing? I don't know, because there's been, there has been plenty of effort that's been uh, tried to ban or, or censor, certain metal bands yeah you know i mean even the eagles with hotel california sure that was supposed to be this terrible devil worshiping song you know it was a um yeah there, there's it's all over the place well the last sentence of this article that i'll link says what do you think should rap lyrics be used to convict defendants so i guess we'll leave it there i'll, I'll let y'all listen and decide for yourself um as a segue here to get into um our next and final accidental for the first movement i wanted to bring in a tune by anderson pack now you know who he is of yeah. course you know he uh we were watching tiny desks uh earlier anderson pack i think he still holds the record for the most uh watched one 60 million views And he has a tune called Six Summers. I wanted to use this as a segue, Scott, because it samples something. And we're about to talk about sampling. It samples the tune by Gil Scott Heron, a composer who we've uh, talked about before. The last time we talked about him was the tune Whitey on the Moon. Mm -hmm. Well, I think 
even more famous um, in his catalog is The Revolution Shall Not Be Televised, something that I'm sure a lot of people have been revisiting um, in this past week. Mm. So Anderson Pack sampled that and sampled those lyrics. And I'm thinking about that tune because when you think about how strong uh, the lyrics are mm-hmm. and how we consider them artistic as as they are, but also real, that's the same respect we need to put on um this this more contemporary rap i think it's unfair for uh artists to have to mute themselves or censor themselves because someone might use that in a court of law you know what you say can and will be isn't that a part of the when you're being mirandized so yeah anyway um I'll, as y'all think about that i wanted to share a little bit of um anderson pack sampling gil scott heron's the revolution shall not, not be televised uh, in a tune called six summers the revolution will not be televised, but it will be streamed live in 1080p on your pea brain head in the face ass mobile device. Alright? This shit gonna bang at least six summers from out that rock you've been under. Mummy Sampling, sampling, okay. That's where we are. So before we get into this article um, about Nikki and Tracy Chapman, I want to make sure we're not leaving anybody behind. So when we talk about sampling, mm-hmm. what are we talking about? Where you take a fragment and, of a something that's already been recorded, and you either use that as the basis to build on it for your own hook, or you know you'll loop it, you know something like that, where uh, it becomes the bedrock of your new track. Right, right. And we've talked about it on this podcast a lot. Uh, shout out to Ill Harmonic Orchestra, you know, mm-hmm. sampling mm-hmm. classical tracks to j- just as everything, a fifth of Beethoven, you know, that that's a, a sample. Right. So, you know, just just make sure everybody. Right. Knows. All right. So <clears throat> I'm reading here from Vulture.com. The headline is Tracy Chapman wins $450,000 copyright suit against Nicki Minaj. The legal battle between legendary singer Tracy Chapman and legendary rapper Nicki Minaj has come to an end. Chapman has accepted Minaj's offer of $450,000 to satisfy her copyright infringement claims per documents obtained by the Hollywood Reporter. Now, this is important. Listen carefully. In a summary judgment, U.S. District Court Judge Virginia Phillips established that Minaj had a fair use right to manipulate Chapman's song, Baby Can I Hold You, and set up a trial to explore responsibility for the leak of Minaj's derivative, Sorry, featuring Nas. That was Mm. the other rapper Mm -hmm. that was going to be on the track. So what I'm reading here is... Nicki Minaj and her team took um, some Tracy, some of Ch- Tracy Chapman's music, sampled it, got M- made like, a track, like made a track. Couldn't get permission to like put it out there. It didn't show up on the album. I, I got that album. You know, Nicki Minaj came out with her new album. That was the summer of 2019. Mm. Um, so, it, so the song, you know, was not on there. Um, and the judge said, you know, it was fair use. She could she could use it, and it wasn't monetized, so whatever. I think the next move was, okay, well then, how did it get out there? So that's Nicki Minaj paying Tracy Chapman $450,000 to just be done with it all because Nicki is busy, um, has a new baby, you know, mm-hmm. so congratulations to um, Nicki Minaj and uh, Mr. Petty, her husband, and, and, and that's that. But I think this brings up a really interesting conversation um, about what the sample means in the good way. It's one thing to come from the perspective of, oh, well, good, you know, uh, you shouldn't steal someone's stuff and X, Y, and Z, but what, what does the sampling do that's good? And I think there are 
are uh, many, many examples of that. Maybe I'm a little biased because I love hip hop. I just didn't like to see folks automatically jumping on Tracy Chapman's side without thinking about what it could mean for the culture for us to have a, a song featuring a bl- legendary black artist like her, who a lot of the hip hop younglings today may not know. Of. Weren't you telling me that she's on that list of do not sample? Yeah, no sample. Like, no, do, just don't even ask. Yeah. Okay. Um, when we talked about all of those new artistic uh, works coming into public domain, right. uh, was it last week mm-hmm. or week before? Yep. The point was made that having that copyright protection was not doing any of the owners any That's good. What I'm so, but now that a lot of this stuff is 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 going to be of free use, it gets them back in the zeitgeist. It gets them back in use, right? Right. So. Wouldn't it just get, baby, can I hold you back in the interest? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't she see some tangential sales on iTunes or something like that? Oh, I'm sure. You know, wouldn't she get a little bump? Absolutely. If, I, brought in, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about this one. I, I brought in a few examples of much older songs that were sampled that I came to from their, from their newer versions. But, you know, something that I want to affirm concerning this story, and I'm glad that the top of the article, you know, says it. I'll read it again. Legendary singer Tracy Chapman and legendary rapper Nicki Minaj. On this podcast, I often call Drake my favorite, what, male rapper. Mm-hmm. I do that because around 2010, 2012-ish, especially in my Detroit days, Nikki was who I listened to. When I got in the car, you know, she's the, the was, was the soundtrack. So I didn't like people saying, oh, well, my favorite female rapper, that's what you'll hear a lot. So I just flipped it. I was like, well, my favorite rapper is Nicki Minaj. So my favorite male rapper is Drake. Gotcha. I, I, I wouldn't categorize Nicki Minaj, maybe not as my favorite rapper these days because she just hasn't uh, put out a lot of music. I still joke around and say Drake is my favorite male rapper. But my, my point is she's legendary and in, a, in the 21st century certainly changed the way we talked about women in hip hop completely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's that. This article mentions that the song that sampled Tracy Chapman involved Nas. I don't have to give Nas his flowers. Anybody who knows anything about hip hop understands that he's one of the most important figures that we have in that entire genre. So, and, and both of those artists um, are, for, um, for, are from uh, Queens, you know, so there's that connection there. You pull in Tracy Chapman, a woman who is legendary in her own right, right. in a different way. And, and just having those three black powerhouses, that's an incre- would've, would've, it would have been incredible. Would've, I would have had that song on repeat. Amazing confluence. You know? Yeah. But I understand um, and affirm Tracy Chapman's right to hang on to her music, because that is her music. So I'm not saying she's oh, 100% wrong for on doing that. that. No, you're absolutely right. I'm just sure. saying that an opportunity was missed. And I've, I'm sorry that Tracy couldn't see, you know, Miss Chapman couldn't see you know what 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 that could mean for the culture what role does the station that leaked it what what are they going to face if anything well we have yet to see didn't because, didn't you yeah. see that say that it was over it was played over the air I on a radio I station so like on like on a dj set i think so you uh, know how they do live dj right, sets right. I, I think something like that over the air through. or a club yeah over the air oh wow yeah okay so so we'll see They'll, they'll probably be liable, too. But the fight is over because Nicki Minaj was like, here, here's $450,000. Get out of my face. You know, it seems like it's, a it's lot. It's nice to have it. it, didn't, it, it. Didn't, she didn't make any money off it, though. 
I don't know. I'm that's torn. what I'm saying. I'm torn on this one. That, that's what I'm saying. It was not monetized ever. So did you give it a flat? I gave that. Thank you, Scott. I gave that a flat. Yes. Let me. Let me. Uh, but to before we leave this and and move on into the uh, second movement, I just wanted to offer a few examples. You know, again, what I'm saying. All of the little younglings who might have gone to buy. Tracy Chapman's music after hearing that sample, you know, so things that I've been put on to um, the song, the rap uh, song of the year by the Grammys, I believe back in 2018, because this is 2021 now, maybe it was 2019, a song by rapper 21 Savage called A Lot. It sampled a tune called I Love You um, for Many Seasons. I think I I Love You for Many Seasons by a woman group called The Fuzz, a really beautiful song there. wouldn't have an opus of triloquy without my mentioning Beyonce. So I'll say when she, (laughs) when she released, Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get kicked out of the beehive. Was that lemonade? Yeah. When she came out with lemonade a few years ago, one of the tunes is called six inch that sampled an Isaac Hayes joint Mm. called walk on by one that, that, you know, I'm sure Sure. Um, I wouldn't have known that uh, tune if it weren't for Beyonce. And I definitely went back to listen to that one as well. Walk on by by Isaac Hayes. Yeah, that's used in trip hop a lot. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there was the most famous hip hop flute solo for a while, for a few months there, Mask Off by Future. You know, by the way, I'm sure he is just waiting in the wings for COVID to be over because that is going to be the soundtrack of going back to the club, huh? Mask Off. We could finally take our mask <laughs> uh. mask off as, as Future rap. Anyway, he used um, a tune. He sampled a tune called Prison Song by Tommy Butler. And that's where you got that flute solo and that beautiful aesthetic. So um, a little bit of that, you know, Prison Song by Tommy Butler, a song that I wouldn't have uh, known if it weren't for hip hop. We ain't, we ain't even into the second movement yet, and you're cranking all these bands off. I know, and those are the only three I'm going to bring out, but all I'm saying is the tradition of hip-hop sampling songs and bringing what was into what is now, mm-hmm. I think is a really beautiful tradition that can't be upheld if other black artists like Tracy Chapman don't understand the impact that it can have. Mm. I feel like there are a lot of people listening who are going to be disagreeing with me saying, no, I need to put some respect on Tracy Chapman's name. I do. Yeah, full respect. I do. I saw her play live. She's amazing. And, and, not but, but and, y'all need to put some respect on Nicki Minaj and, and and the legacy of hip hop as well, because this could have been big and we're letting things like copyright and money get in the way of what I think is more important, Mm. which is the art. So as we continue to honor folks from the past and uh, segue into the second movement here, I I wanted to just mention, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just wanted to mention the late uh, Elizabeth Cotton, her uh, birth anniversary, I believe passed, 
since we recorded last, an incredible uh, guitarist, a black woman who really paved the way for guitar. Your finger style, Scott, when mm-hmm. you play, when you just pick up the guitar and play something, it sounds a lot to me like her, like Elizabeth Cotton. You talk about the artist that you know you got it from and who you listen to, but I think it's another example, just a living example of how even what you do and what you enjoy to do is not only black, but was codified in many ways by a black woman. Sure. You know? And I love the way that it, it gets handed down and changed and you know, uh, made into each artist's own as it goes. Mm, a lot like a sample. Huh? Mm. Mm, what a beautiful tradition to be upheld. So let's, as we get into the second movement here, here's a little bit of playing by the late Elizabeth Cotton. Rest in power to her. Garrett. This week, Take a Stand takes on a little bit of a different meeting. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. That's Take a Podium. <laughs> no, the podium is the platform that you stand on. The lectern. So, okay. <laughs> take a lectern. And they got his ass, too. I saw his uh, mugshot. Yeah. Looking stupid, looking crazy. Anyway, go on. I just thought it was really interesting to note. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the music? So Take a Stand here in the second movement. What is the uh, music that moved you this week? I have listened about uh, somewhere between eight and a dozen times to Living Color. Do you you remember me talking about Living Color before? I've played them before. Yeah, you have shown me, but uh, the people may not know. Living Color is a band that formed in New York City in the mid-80s. It was uh, 1988, I think it was, when Vivid came out. I want to shout out each of the members, Corey Glover, vocals, Vernon Reed, amazing guitarist, and a great Twitter feed. Um, their first bassist was uh, Muzz Skillings, and Will Calhoun is a drummer. Um, but anyway, going back to their breakout hit called Cult of Personality. And this just, again, feeds into the fact that we have been talking about these issues and these problems. Culted personality? Cult of personality. Cult of personality. Right. So, and this song for them came about when they were practicing something else and, you know, sort of getting warmed up. And Corey was humming something and Vernon went over to his notebook, kind of like what you've got. And he saw just one line that he had written out. Look in my eyes. What do you see? But when Reed came back to explain the lyrics, he said the whole idea of it was to move past the duality duality of that's a good person, that's a bad person. What do the good and the bad have in common? I'm going to scroll down here again. Cult of Personality was about celebrity, but on a political level. It asked what made us follow these individuals who were larger than life, yet still human beings. Aside from their social importance, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, both looked like matinee idols. That was a strong part of why their message is connected. Even now, it's why Barack Obama has that certain something. And where are you reading from there? That is just a quote that comes from the Wikipedia page on Cult of Personality, the song. Um, Speak to their being black in that musical aesthetic, because if if I didn't say that, I know I would not, you know, me listening, I would not have thought about the fact that these are black musicians we're talking about 
Mm. Well, I think that that era, the late 80s and early 90s, you were seeing a lot of cross-pollination. You were seeing white rappers, okay? Now, they didn't quite have the staying power, a lot of them. I mean, I would say Beastie Boys has more respect than Vanilla Ice, right? But, For so, go but, on. But Black... <laughs> But black people in, uh, they've always been in rock music, right? You can go back to Bad Brains in Washington, D.C., Fishbone on the more ska uh, sort of tip, um, Thin Lizzy. Um, black people have been in this sort of music for a long time. But I, I don't know. I, I nailed that Corey was, at least that the lead singer was black from the time he opened his mouth. Oh, yeah. He's powerful. The He's, seasoning. The seasoning, as I say. Perhaps. Yeah. So this song, Cult of Personality, mm-hmm. as you listen to it in the context of this time that we're in, speak to um, what that does for your mood, because it seems like that aesthetic matches what is kind of just in the air. I find it really interesting that this song made it to number 13 on the Billboard 100. People would sing along with it when it came on the radio and just rage along not probably probably not realizing just exactly what they were singing <laughs> you know what i mean that's that and and that has that has not changed has it so to an extent the a lot of the lyrics are very simple but they're impactful for me because sometimes the message needs to be delivered in a simple terms in simple terms like uh, this lyric here There is also, when Vernon gets onto his solos, he uses so many different techniques to get out of that guitar. His skill is unmatched <laughs> in, in a lot of these, you know. Uh, I, I'm, I, I don't know about unmatched, but it's up there. Um, and it feels to me like an opening of a floodgate. When he lets loose, it's all over. You just are washed up in Vernon. You know, and I feel like we saw the, in the last few days a dam break. Do you stand or something? I mean, Vernon, if you're listening, <laughs> uh, don't think I'm not going to add him when I post this on my on my Instagram. No, but but, but, but shout uh, out to that band. That's a bit of Black history that made it by me mm-hmm. coming up. No, no one. I don't. I'll have to ask my dad about living color. I'm right. sure. He, I'm sure he knows. Uh, and you know, Corey Glover's the only guy that I know of who could rock a body glove wetsuit and a street legal leather jacket. <laughs> and he's got braids like yours. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh well, no, these are locks. These are not braids. I'm yet. sorry. I don't. I don't know any better. <laughs> but um, they were active up until like uh, 1995 or 96. Mm. But they have recently gotten back together again so maybe we're going to hear some more from this band i don't know and i hope they have their mask on (laughs) well scott i took a a slightly different way this week you know how i am about people calling classical music soothing Mm -hmm. i i don't like that but damn it scott i needed something soothing this week so (laughs) garrett there's nothing wrong you can use it that way i know yeah it doesn't have to be that way all the time but even but even so there there is activism and uh, relevance in finding that music. So okay, let's see. I went in uh, and dug around into some new releases. Actually, you know, I'm following your lead there. You know, just seeing what's new out there in the so-called classical world. And I found uh, music by an artist, um, a black man named Alexis 
French. The tune that I want to share is called Walk With Us, and then in parentheses, written for Black Lives Matter. That I, I was drawn, and he has a lot of music out there. I, I uh, encourage everyone to go uh, check him out. That's Alexis French with two F's, by the way. F-F-R-E-M-C-H. <laughs> right. French. Yes. Um, the music really spoke to me because I saw that title, Walk With Us, thinking about who was marching in Washington this week and who was there and what they were doing. When you see a, a title, Walk With Us, and you hear this music that is so encouraging and so affirmative in what we're actually looking for when you talk about Black Lives Matter and, mm -hmm. and racial equity, we're looking for a world filled with peace. We're looking for a world that allows us to be that allows us to stop and smell the roses, allows us to explore what we want to explore, enjoy life. And I think that's what this this tune speaks to. Um, the general aesthetic, of course, as I mentioned, helped me lower my spirits. Mm -hmm. The last time I listened to it today, I was in the shower and I just had the uh, music going. And I just felt, as you say, my shoulders lower as I'm thinking about the very busy week we're going to have this week, yeah. everything that's going to be on the news and everywhere. So again, I do not take back my anger at folks who like to <laughs> categorize classical music as this soothing thing. And I'm, I'm getting better at saying not but, but and, because, you know, multiple things can be true. Okay. So all of that and this tune is really soothing. It speaks to the black experience. It speaks to the moment and is one that I think you should tune into. It's called Walk With Us, music by Alexis French. So, Scott, I wanted to introduce uh, today's guest um, a little bit more. So, Laura Kreider with the American Composers Forum, her uh, primary uh, role is youth program. So, when we talk about composers and new music artists, she's looking at the always looking at the next generation and the young people. You might remember earlier in the summer, I hosted uh, their virtual Next Notes award ceremony I do. That, that included a series of interviews with some young composers if you go on youtube and search uh just search my name garrett mcqueen um and next notes you can check out some of those conversations one of the young people and i'm sorry that i'm forgetting his name uh right now but he was a cold open one week when he talked about all music being black music and i didn't even you know i'm i'm you just I, let him go I, I let him go i was like sing your song Testify. I agree. yes so <laughs> so so the next the next generation is going to be all right anyway laura um engages um those folks uh with the american composers forum uh last summer uh del and i went over to her place and had a uh socially uh, physically distance sort of thing in her backyard and one of the things we began to talk about was uh body politics and um fat phobia and um eating disorders um i, I don't think i've ever talked about it on this podcast but when i was a teenager i, I suffered from anorexia pretty seriously uh to the point 
where it impacted my music. Uh, I, I talk about uh, in my conversation with Laura the way um, that I breathed, you know, was mm-hmm. was impacted by it. And, you know, it's a lifelong thing to um, get over, uh, you know, things like that. But, you know, even even so in, in my struggles, there's privilege in being on the so, so-called skinny side of body politics. So uh, Laura helps me um, break down even the word fat, you know, we, we consider that a bad word. Um, that's something that has to change. And as we continue to talk about using more equitable language, we have to understand that that is a descriptor, not something that is a pejorative, something that uh, Laura affirms. So I, I really pr- appreciated uh, once again, her coming on and helping me engage this conversation, something that We'll have to say for next time, toward the end of our conversation, Lara mentions um, opera and uh, the Wagnerian singer. You know, when we talk sure. about the phrase, it's not over till the fat lady sings. Well, Lara also is of Jewish heritage. So one day I'm going to have to have her back to talk about Wagner and how she feels about all that mm-hmm. next Y and Z. Um, but Are you going to gonna wear your horned helmet? <laughs> uh, to get us into the conversation, though, I wanted to uh, remind people of another piece of music. Um, you know, Scott, I love to connect dots and make metaphors and everything. So as I thought about folks storming the Capitol, I went back to one of my favorite animated musicals, The Prince of Egypt, talking about Moses going back into Egypt and mm-hmm. not storming quite like the white people did, mm-hmm. but actually freeing people in X, Y, and Z. And, and that um, proximity to um, Jewish culture and Jewish history and the religion when it comes to the stories of the Exodus and, and, and the Passover and all that. So anyway, just making, making all those weird connections. Um, on that soundtrack to The Prince of Egypt is a tune called Through Heaven's Eyes, basically the, the song saying, how can you really value or put weight on what you can see right in front of your eyes when you your purpose could be bigger you just don't know how it fits into the puzzle um to to help you know to offer an example to you scott when you started in radio there was no way for you to understand the ways in which your work would intersect with racial equity mm-hmm. and and all of those things in that field you know but it 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 came to pass you know our paths intersected um, I, I hear that song and I think about conversations with people, what we see in the news, what we can do as individuals in our own community. And I think it's just, you know, it just affirms that we all have a bigger purpose. And I like listening to that song and thinking about that because it's a great way to feel empowered. It's a great way to not escape the noise and everything that's going on, but just really use music as a tool to, you know, raise your spirits in a way to give you what you need to Mm. push forward. So I thought I would share, you know, my long way of saying, I thought I would share a little bit of that. Um, It's, it's a, I don't know if you've ever seen the film, Scott, we'll sit down and watch it. It's, it's musically a masterpiece and you know how I feel about religion. It's, it's a fully religious movie and I love it. I I think it's great. So anyway, uh, here's a little bit of that uh, through heaven's eyes from the Prince of Egypt. And here's my conversation with Laura Crider. Look at your life. Look at your life through 
the word disruption in like the nonprofit sector has always been so radical and like sexy mm-hmm. in a way. Um, I don't know. There are so many words that we use that just mean different things in different sectors. So I don't, I don't know if this will particularly change that, but I think, um, I don't know. What would I think about that? I think um, what happened this past Wednesday was disrupting some systems that are working really well and that we hold dear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think it's great to disrupt things that need to be toppled. Um, I don't know. I'm not being very articulate about this, but. I mean, it is a very difficult conversation. It's It's a difficult conversation because there are a lot of things happening on Capitol Hill that are not working, but right. Yeah. Like I I don't want to say like the system's great. The system's great. I don't know why they're freaked out. Yeah. I, I've been thinking a lot too about, you know, like in Biden's um, response speech when he was talking about how like, this isn't America, like this isn't us. And I was like, this is very American. Right. Yeah. This is exactly what America is right now. So like, I'm even having trouble with that language about what it means to be an American right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What, What do you think could be the role of an arts institution in that sort of climate, let's say that they had been successful and done whatever they, you know, stormed the Capitol to do in that world in in that ecosystem. What is the, what is the role of an arts institution? Yeah, I think that um, an increasingly large role of, of what we do is advocacy and understanding that artists are citizens Mm. um, and that we're not here just to, create beauty in the world and to reflect back to ourselves, the culture that we are. I mean, like we are actively a part of our immediate communities, but also these larger national communities. So I think that artists um, and organizations have to be vocal. I think it's easy to forget that. Yeah. Artists are also citizens who are impacted by what happens everywhere, you know, and the exactly. artist impacted itself. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So I've, I've talked a little bit already about the work that you do for the American Composers Forum, but I'm curious more about your uh, your musical background. So I understand uh, that you are a singer. D- did I remember correctly um, from the last time we saw each other that uh, you have a background in musical theater specifically or show choir or things along those lines? I didn't grow up with show choir. I grew up with more like the jazz, the jazz, oh. vocal jazz world. But um. Yeah, I've always loved music theater, but I grew up very engaged in music and music theater and vocal music specifically. And um, thought when I, you know, went to study in college that my only two options were performance or teaching, because that's all I was ever shown that like, okay, if you want to be in the arts, here are your two options, you can perform, or you can teach. And um, neither of those had full time interest for me. Like I, I knew I wanted to engage in artistry and that rigor that's involved in that. And I knew I wanted to um, support the field in some way, but I was always more along the, along the lines of um, how I could be in a support role to like, what do artists need so that they can do what they do? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I went into music education and already knew that it wasn't going to be what I was you know, what was going to be my primary interest. Right. But yeah, I always wanted to continue singing on the side. I'm a big choir nerd. Um, so I've continued, you know, I have my full-time administrative work in the arts nonprofit sector, but I've always um, been professionally singing after hours, <laughs> if you will, yeah. In, oh, yeah. Um, in choirs or, you know, recording sessions for publishers, or I love new music reading sessions, stuff like that. 
arts administrator by day and singer by night sounds like a jazz vocalist sort of thing, yeah, you know? <laughs> that's it. Yeah, it makes me sound way more exciting than I am. <laughs> so one of the reasons that I really love the work that the American Composers Forum doing is um, because gender and racial equity really is at the center of, of so much of the work. As, um, as uncomfortable of a conversation that still is for many people and many institutions, What's even more uncomfortable is talking about what we're going to talk about today, you know, the idea of body politics and, and fat phobia. The first thing I want to, you know, acknowledge is that for me personally, I'm always, you know, censuring uh, racial equity and, and, and black liberation. And when I think about the intersection of body politics, fat phobia and um, black folk, you know, I'm thinking about stereotypes like um, the Mamie, like the auntie or even um, the, the semen unharmful healer or or take mm -hmm. care of everyone in, in in these films I definitely wanted to you know start by acknowledging that I am always thinking about that very um, important um, intersection and I won't say but and it's also something that impacts folks of all different um, genders and and backgrounds and and colors I wanted to um, just kick things off by acknowledging something that you said in one of our email exchanges, fat phobia being the last acceptable form of discrimination. I want to uh, I want you to break that down for me a little bit. What do you what do you mean by last acceptable form of discrimination? Yeah, I mean, and that's more of an opinion statement. I, sure. I don't have, you know, research backing this, but I feel like there are more communally accepted ideas around race and what oppression means mm -hmm. in terms of race, at least like in my liberal bubble. <laughs> but body oppression outside of race, which is often fat discrimination, mm -hmm. is still seems to be really commonly accepted, you know, like in all of the media content that we take in personal relationships and dating um, all of the moralizing that happens around food and body size and consumerism, especially around the new year. Um, so I feel like it's like very embedded in everyday life, um, just like systemic racism is. But for some reason, um, people still think it's a, uh, it's just like, yeah, that's just part of what we are. Like we can still use fat suits in uh, this comedy movie or, you know, whatever it is. It just, right. it seems to be less commonly understood as still being discrimination. Right. And I don't want to get too far, but, you know, dealing with the word acceptable is one thing, but right. I think we also have to sort of break down the word fat. I think about the fact that so many folks, you know, bridging it back to racial equity, I think about how we're now getting comfortable with folks who are not black saying the word black. You know, it used to be a stumble upon what hyphenated mm -hmm. phrase we need to use. Um, it seems like that word fat is still in that category of ugly words. Words were not comfortable with, even if it is only a, a, uh, a non-pejoratively uh, uh, descriptor, you know, and, and the, it, you know, the word as a descriptor is even uncomfortable for people. Yeah, I completely agree. And it depends, like every person you ask is going to have a different um, reaction to that word. I call myself a fat person because to me, it is a descriptor. It's not a moral term. Um, that's the size of my body. Um, yeah, I, I think we need to normalize stuff like that. But again, it depends who that audience is and people are going to have different triggers to that. Um, I think something that I, I want to start doing more is challenging people when they they comment and respond, you know, like when I call myself fat, sometimes people respond and be like, oh my gosh, don't say that. Like, you're not fat or like, don't be so hard on yourself or that kind of thing. 
and I want I want to try to do more direct challenging and mirroring back to them. When you say that to me, you're telling me that fat equals bad. Mm, mm-hmm. And I'm using it as a descriptor. So um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of terms, like you said, like always trying to find the right terms. Like I've heard, um, you know, uh, big bone is what I'm yeah. thinking about. Or- <laughs> yeah, thick or big boned or, you know, yeah. kind of like straight sized versus not straight sized people or mm-hmm. people of size. Um, there's all of that lingo going around, but I, I think descriptors are descriptors, but again, um, it's going to be perceived differently by who takes it in. Right. Because yeah. when I think about uh, my family potlucks, I think about my grandmother and even my great grandmother who's passed away now saying, you know, coming home for dinner and, and her saying to me, oh boy, look at you over there getting fat. You know, she doesn't mean right. that as something ugly, just, you know, it's, it's all in love. But even yeah. for me, you know, something that I haven't talked a lot about um, openly, you know, that did have an adverse effect on me. You know, mm-hmm. as a teenager, I, I, I suffer from anorexia. And, you know, there are there are certain issues that I continue to work through. But even so, uh, I recognize that there is privilege in um, certain circumstances and certain words, including the word skinny. You know, we talk about the word fat. For me, um, skinny was always some sort of um, problematic aspiration that I had Mm -hmm. based on what what I was going through. Other people um, will take that word skinny and and find offense, you know, maybe folks who have always tried to gain weight all their lives or, you know, folks who have who have always looked a certain way. But even so, it seems to me that there is privilege there. I don't I don't think it's quite the same for me to have an adverse reaction to being um, called skinny, if that's how I don't want to look versus being called fat. I wonder if you could speak to that, the privilege of these words, even, you know, while considering that they both can be taken as, as bad words, there's still privilege on one side. Oh, completely. And, you know, I've even seen it happen in, in terms of positive uh, feedback that people will give like, Oh my God, it looks like you've lost weight or like, you're looking really healthy. You know, like what do all of these things mean that are Mm -hmm. still loaded? I think um, thin privilege is very much a thing. Um, And I think oftentimes thin privilege people picture like a cis white woman Um, So I I feel like there's even been some co-opting around what like a normal person looks like versus Mm -hmm. in um, outside of normal or abnormal. Um, But I think that this privilege is it. It's a political thing. I mean, it's it has to do with policies. It has to do with what the seats in the theater look like. It has to do with um, so much about access and ability versus disability and uh, sizeism and and all of that. Yeah. yeah. Before before we, you know, put this conversation into the into the context of music as as we study and and advocate for, you know, in, in pop music and, and hip hop and all of these other fields, um, I've seen, I'm sure you've seen over the decades, the look of the slender bikini woman changing to a woman who is much more curvaceous and, mm-hmm. and, and much more busty, if I may <laughs> use that word. But but there still seems to me uh, to be some respectability around around uh, the way the needle has been moved in that way. I I wonder if you could speak to that at all. That's so tricky because, um, you know, like there's like the Lizzo thing happening where everyone's just like, oh my God, it's all about body liberation and and like self-love and all of this. Um, But that's not the case for everyone. And I think there's been this kind of interesting middle ground taking shape, like kind of around like this thick idea where there's like still an acceptable fat. Yeah. There's like, sexy fat or acceptable fat and then there's like fat fat 
And I don't know when that switches over, but it seems like, especially in pop music, there still seems to be like, there's like the, the curviness, the Rubenesque thing. That's mm-hmm. like the booty thing that is now acceptable. But for some reason, when it gets to a certain point, suddenly it is not acceptable at all and not attractive at all. Right, right. Let, yeah. Let's let's take this into, um, as I said, the, the the corners of music that we spend most of our yeah. time in. Something that I um, said to you over email again, you know, I'll, I'll just offer my uh, experience as context. When we talk about the ways that this impacts the art, I'm thinking about breathing first. So when I was coming up as a bassoonist and having the issues that I was having around body politics, I didn't want to breathe correctly because I didn't want anyone to perceive me as being fat because I my stomach was sticking out because I'm breathing correctly. This must be even uh, more pronounced um, with your body itself being the instrument. Yeah, exactly. I so, so relate to that because I've I've struggled with the same issue. And I'd still say I still do it at some times um, because my um, instrument is my body and there are certain limitations that it has that you just kind of process, but there's also ways that it is physically and physiologically moving that you can't really ignore as you're studying and as you're trying to gain your skills. So like, I remember being in voice lessons and feeling so vulnerable and, you know, your voice teacher can pinpoint each of those weaknesses. I can see you're afraid to let your rib cage expand, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, like with breathing or um, how much presentation has to do with um, singing and voice studios and things like that. So um, it's definitely been, um, it's been always like at top of mind in all of my music study that if I were to disengage my body, I wouldn't be able to sing. Like you have to be in it. You have to experience it um, and then deal with all of the vulnerabilities that bubble up to the top. I'm thinking about the uh, performance experience right now as an audience member to, you know, we, we typically see musicians in all black or mostly black, mm-hmm. you know, in certain spaces. And for the instrumentalists, I find myself looking at the violin or looking at the flute or whatever they're playing. But, you know, again, for the singer, you're looking at the person. And so often when a singer um, is at the front of one of these spaces, you know, maybe not back in a choir, but maybe a featured um, uh, vocalist, maybe they're wearing this beautiful gown or, or, or something that draws the eyes um, even more. And it seems like that just has to be um, such a challenge outside of the conversation of body politics, but certainly within it for, again, the focus to be, you know, sometimes it seems like the focus is more on you and your body and your person than the actual music itself. Yeah, there's definitely, um, well, of course, there's a performative element with the music, but there's a performative element with the body, too. Right. I feel like I found a loophole being a choral singer. Like I get to hold a, a folder in front of me and that's like my shield, <laughs> right, to the audience, um, which I don't know if that just like subconsciously became part of why I enjoy choral singing so much. I mean, obviously, I enjoy it for other reasons. But yeah, I mean, um, to be a featured singer, you know, like if you're doing art song or oratorio or music theater or whatever. I mean, there is such a focus on the the physical presentation. I mean, I remember in voice lessons being told really specific ways to dress. You know, you Hmm. closed toed shoes, nylons. Um, You want clothing that's going to not distract from the music because that's the main event. But then there's also 
the obvious, um, like you said, people are very much looking at your clothing. Right, right. As much as, as much as we can say it's all about the music, I mean, you're you are um, creating an experience for the audience. So it's um, it's hard to avoid those um, aspects of being a musician. And for the sake of me and the rest of the ignorant men listening, by nylon, you mean like pantyhose or tights? Yes, or, okay, exactly, just, exactly. Just making sure, just making sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're, you're bringing up, you know, the folder as a shield. It, it, it made me think of, uh, of something, you know, from my choral days. I, I forget the performance, but for the first time at the performance, the music director gave us the signal to um, close our folders and put them down in our side. It's one thing to have anxiety surrounding, oh my gosh, am I going to remember what notes I have to sing when when the second alto split off. But it's another it's another thing to have that anxiety because you're like, oh, my gosh, now everyone can actually see my body. I think it's just right. something that so many of us don't think about, even um, w within art spaces, you know, along with, you know, some of the challenges. There are stereotypes that I think um, uh, is, I hate to put it in a positive or a negative light because right now I'm thinking about the opera singer, you know, the, mm -hmm. the stereotypical image of the opera singer. Some might argue that being of a certain size and having a certain cavity for your instrument, you know, allows for um, success and, and, and however you want to define that. Others are still saying that there um, is a discrimination even with the stereotype of the, the large opera singer. I, I wonder if you can speak to that. I mean, are, how, how does how, how should this conversation parlay when we're talking about those seemingly not so hurtful stereotypes within the arts, you know, specifically opera in this case? Yeah, um, I've always wondered about, you know, the resonance space um, mm -hmm. and, and how that affects the sound depending on the size of the body. I'm in no way like a pedagogical expert that can speak to that. Um, but like you said, with the, with the voice being the instrument, um, now, let me put my thoughts together here. I think, sorry. Oh, you're fine, you're fine. I think with, with uh, you know, performing arts, like specifically opera and music theater, there's a lot of um, typecasting that right. happens, like that you were kind of explaining in the beginning. And that um, oftentimes, depending on your body type, it is decided regardless of your voice type, what role is best for you? Mm. You know, I've always been the character actor. I've always been, you know, the grandma, the buttercup in HMS Pinafore, like the, the, um, yeah, the, the old, the cartoonish, never the love interest, that kind right. of side character right. that adds, adds the flavor, right? Um, never the ingenue. So I think, I think a lot of this in opera and music theater is that typecasting issue. Um, I, I have heard, though, I, you know, I remember um, listening to an interview with an opera costume designer that was saying that opera is actually more size accepting than many other performing arts. I think she was probably comparing it mostly in terms of opera versus music theater. Mm -hmm. But she said her costuming was a lot more diverse in sizing than it was when she was working in other spaces. So that was that was encouraging. Um, but yeah, I think. Um, I forgot where I was going with this, but I, I think a lot of it comes down to what um, you are being perceived of versus what instrument or skill you're actually bringing so to, what a, or to an experience. 
So what happens when the uh, theater companies and the opera companies are making fat women, fat men, fat uh, musicians, the love interests, not the not the comedy sidekick? At what point do we have to worry about uh, tokenization connected to body politics? Is that are we even close enough to that to even consider that? Oh my God, I think about this all the time, <laughs> especially in TV and films. Right. There's so little representation of body diversity. And I feel like where we're at right now is like we're starting to turn a corner where there are some fat characters, but their story arc is about being fat. Like, I can't tell you how many people have told me to watch This Is Us because there's a fat woman in it. And I, I know from commercials, you know, like, what that arc is probably about and that would be triggering for me so I'm not interested you know I'm totally judging something that I haven't seen before so maybe that's not the best example but I, I feel like representation is starting to approach but that is still their character is what their body is mm. they don't have a life outside of that body and I'm hoping that we can keep working toward representation and complexity in like the human experience so it's not just a fat person being about a fat person right. or um, a thin person struggling with very specifically, you know, an eating disorder, like binging or, you know, something that keeps them thin. Um, what life do they have outside of their body? <laughs> right, right. So yeah. to so to, you know, back up and, and to apply this to the, the broader picture, we're here in January. A lot of folks are in the middle of um overlooking their new year's resolutions or, or maybe they're actually at the gym or on the pavement or, or whatever, you know, how do you think we can um, in a more healthy way to, you know, to use that word, how can we in a more healthy way address things like health, like wanting to be more physically active without towing the line of fat phobia, bigotry, mm -hmm. and participating in the, in the bo body discrimination that's running around everywhere. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting health for yourself. You know, I know, I know there are um, some people who use the even the word healthist. Like, mm. if you're not healthy, does that make you not as good of a person or not as virtuous of a person? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be healthy and having these goals for yourself. It's being aware of is what's driving that desire. Is it a fear of becoming a certain body? Right. Is it... Um, is it a desire for, you know, if it's lovability or appeal or like that kind of thing. So just kind of knowing what plays into your decisions, but wanting to feel good in your body is like, that's human. That's awesome. Um, a, a lot of what I wish was being taught more in schools too, though, was like media literacy. So understanding as we're, you know, as the new year comes and we're taking in, um, you know, the Instagram, like the Fitspo models, mm -hmm doing their yoga on the rocks by the ocean on a right. sunset or like while looking you know, beautiful and, and oh my God, all they look of gorgeous. that they're gorgeous yeah. <laughs> or like or even just like all of these self-love movements to understand that like that is coming from a very specific place that's probably trying to sell you something or make you feel shame about something mm. right so to kind of understand as you approach these these healthful activities and these nutrient dense foods that will make you feel better. Um, what's yeah. What's, what's behind that and what are you striving for? Right. Right. And, and thinking about, you know, I want to go back uh, to thinking a little bit again about the youth because uh, that's where a lot of these things 
start, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and grow um, in our developments, you know, with your work, um, with your proximity to youth in your work, you know, with the ACF, mm-hmm. I wonder if you've thought much about, you know, the ways in which these conversations and the initiatives that grow from them can impact the youth. I'm thinking about um, that little girl who, you know, is uncomfortable putting down her choir folder, the little boy who doesn't want to breathe from his diaphragm because he doesn't want anyone to see his stomach sticking out. How, how, how can we, uh, from your perspective, uh, you know, make these conversations ones that manifest in equity for the, for the youth musicians, the up and coming artists? Yeah, I mean, I think the vehicle of um, ensemble classrooms and being a musician is the perfect place to explore these issues because it is because musicianship is so physical. I mean, there's Dalcros, there's Alexander Technique, embouchure, right. there's breathing, you know, everything. So I think that this environment is the perfect place to have these conversations. And I think, I think kids are, I mean, I know this probably just makes me sound like an old lady, but, you know, kids are disconnecting so much from their internal body cues and their bodies and just taking in all of this doctored media content. Um, so I think making music is a way to reconnect, um, even if it's just a breathing exercise, even if you're making no sound at all. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, normalizing body diversity and actually talking about, I mean, like the whole Mr. Rogers thing, like if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And I, I don't mean like managing your body. I mean, right. like managing your thoughts around your body and how exactly. you're perceiving other people's bodies. Um it's amazing like what our bodies can actually produce. So I would love, I would love for kids and any developing musician to like really take the time to honor that and understand how different their body is from the person that's standing right next to them or holding the instrument right next to them. Um, Yeah. I, I think something else I've been thinking about, not just with young musicians, but with adults too, is that there's such a connection between perfectionism mm. in um, our music studies and with bot- with people. I've at least, again, I, this isn't fully researched, but I've found, I've noticed a connection between musicians um, and perfectionism and people with body image issues or eating disorders and perfectionism, because we don't become different people when we take up our instruments or open our mouths to sing. I mean, all of the issues we have as humans is going to show up somewhere right. in our music making. Right. So that's just something I've been thinking about too, is that perfectionism and um, how we can process that and understand that we're imperfect and, and beautiful and just different in every way. And that's what makes it beautiful. That's what yes. makes it right. Right. That, that's, exactly. Because any computer these days can do it perfectly. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't want like a choir full of Laura's like that would be so boring. <laughs> like I want people that have such different colors and tones and approaches to music making. I mean, like that's part of what I love about choral singing is, yeah, I don't I don't want it to just be like all, all the same machines. I would be curious enough about a choir full of Lars to go to one performance, at least. That that must be something that has to be unique, if anything. I mean, there, there would be some choreography. Um, yeah, I mean, I would, I would have fun with it, I'll be honest. <laughs> there would definitely be hand motions. <laughs> For sure. For I love sure. that. I think we would both be remiss if we didn't address the phrase, it's not over till the fat lady sings. Ah. Something that I was thinking about as I let that uh, roll around in my mind for a couple of days was the idea of empowerment. Is it inappropriate? Do you think there's any way to pull empowerment out of a phrase like that? Yeah. To kind of 
bring it back and own it? That's a that's a to, good question. To bring it back and own it, or you know, even in the phrase, it's not over till you know. So you know, this person being in charge, you know, this is the this is the final say. You know, we can talk about the problems behind it, but what what if we could even consider the empowerment of it? I love that idea. You know, I've always thought of that phrase as like just like a Wagnerian thing. That's like, you know, some like big chested woman comes out and sings this like hardcore aria. Right. And then the plot resolves in some way, you know, I, I don't know like fully where that, where that phrase came from, but I think that'd be a fun way to approach it. I mean, that phrase has never really like offended me in any way. I've just found it more, more humorous that in like that an opera, an opera concept could become so mainstream. Right. Like, right. Even in like right. sports and stuff like that. Yeah. What I'm, what I'm finding even more interesting in this moment um, that I didn't think about at all is, you know, your Jewish heritage and you're bringing up Wagner and, and what that conversation could look like. <laughs> we'll, we'll save that one for uh, right. <laughs> another time. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you to um, offer uh, the folks something to listen to, uh, maybe something from the, uh, the choral world or the, um, or the music uh, theater world that they may not uh, come onto on their own. But before I ask you to do that, I wonder if you could, um, you know, let folks know how they can get in contact with you, how they can learn more about um, the youth programs at um, ACF and how they can, you know, even contribute if they want to do that. That's great. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd love to continue this conversation um, or anything around youth programs and accessibility. Um, people can reach out to me um, at the American Composers Forum. My email is lkreider, uh, just my first letter and then last name, lkreider at composersforum.org. Give me a call. Um, yeah, I'd love to continue this conversation. I'm not like, I more lurk on social media. I don't post a ton, but um, also welcome to reach out to me through that. One thing I'd recommend if people want to get into kind of the more contemporary side of choral music is a piece by Ted Hearn called Privilege. And what he did is he actually took texts by David Simon from an interview with Bill Moyers and um, set it to music. So it's a multi-movement work exploring some really fascinating political and social issues. Yeah. Um, it's also always, you know, um, refreshing for me to find secular choral music, you know? Yeah, <laughs> um, that too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's a piece that I, I would encourage everyone to check out because it's so great. Um, you know, a lot of the music I've been listening to as of late hasn't been classical or choral. I'll be totally honest. I've been I've been kind of going back into my comfort zone with COVID and everything and listening to a lot of singer songwriters. <laughs> oh, yeah. A lot of more like folk and roots music. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Shout out to Joni Mitchell, I guess. But um, so, yeah, I guess that's that's the from the classical choral world, that's that's the piece that comes to mind first off. I'll, I'll definitely put folks on to uh, Ted Hearn, but since you brought up Joni Mitchell, I, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to share, we're, we're going to outro here with, with my favorite uh, Joni Mitchell performance. So uh, Laura, let's continue to disrupt, but in the way that is not <laughs> uh, disruptive to the things that we don't want to disrupt it's as we started in this conversation, it's hard, it's getting harder to traverse that, but look, right. I, I, I love what you do. And I love what ACF is doing the type of disruption that I definitely stand behind. So thank you for all of that. Thank you for being on truly queen today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Sitting in a park in Paris, France, reading the news and it sure looks bad. They won't give peace a chance. That was just a dream. Some of us had still a lot of lines to see. But I wouldn't want to stay here, it's too old and cold 
old and settled in its ways here All but California California Scott, how comfortable are you engaging the conversation of fat phobia? It's one thing to say more. Well, it's one thing for you to sort of become more accustomed to helping me cuss out white people, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's another thing to go into body politics in that way. Again, as we talk about even the word fat. Sure. You know, I, I'm, I'm very careful around it because for me, it's skinny. And I think about how all of the, the bullying and the teasing and everything that happened really messed with my feeling of masculinity, mm. of, of fitting in, you know. Because um, I, I admit it, in junior high and high school, I was all elbows and knees, you know. And I think that the bullies will find whatever they can to prey on. And for me, it was being thin. So for the other, you know, for, and all my buddies were heavy. You know, so we were all misfits. We were all we were all taking it for for one reason or another. Yeah, and then you know, my dealing with as an adolescent, you know, just not wanting to eat and not eating just to maintain a certain size, even through those very real, very valid and very genuine struggles. When we talk about equity, it's equitable to understand that folks on the other end of that spectrum deal with things outside of the bullying, the systemic ways in which people who are fat are blocked out. When we talk about Mm -hmm. what roles you get in um, film and movies, when we talk about things like uniforms, we don't think about accommodating people whose bodies are a different different. size, you know, Mm -hmm. are just different. And it's no different at the end of the day than skin color or anything else. And then uh, as I affirmed, you know, that I make sure that I say when I cover this topic, intersectionality exists everywhere. So, Women who are fat, who are black, definitely got it rough and definitely have to deal with the tokenization of being the mammy or being the healer or the auntie or whatever. Mm-hmm. If, if you know, if we're, t- we're talking about acting here and, and you can relate that to anything. So I really hope that this um, is a conversation that can continue to expand as I think about ways in which I can uh, promote and inspire equitable language and equitable, equitable practice. This is something that we have to consider as well, because that discrimination and that uh, and those very problematic uh, ways of thinking are are free, are are are, are free and not challenged, you know. And 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 I hope that uh, we can we can work to change that because it's it's one of those conversations that, as a as a society, we haven't really even begun to have. I didn't get to participate in the interview. Did you talk about body positivity and things like that in in your conversation? Well, yeah, to underscore something that Laura said is that even there, you have the right type of fat, right? With, even when men, and Damn. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot, when men say fat in the right places or or round or curvy in all the right places, it, you know, what, what whatever the language is, we have to consider that as well. So there's a, a good type of fat. 
you know, there's mm-hmm. there's a body image still that is unacceptable if you say blank, fat, whatever, curvy, thick in the right places, you know, th- th- there's that as well. And that's a huge part of what happens when we talk about influencers and, and body positivity. And, and, and not that there aren't folks out there doing it right, but it's something that has to be considered for mm-hmm. sure. Anyway, huge shout out to Laura Kreider. Thank you very much. All right, movement four. I was actually on a work Zoom meeting when I first saw the crowd approaching the Capitol itself. This was after uh, the speech and all that. And they hadn't quite made it indoors, but it looked like they were about to. And the whole time I just kept thinking, well, any minute, the Capitol Police are going to show up and swat this away. And they and they show up in bike helmets with mace canisters that people will put in their purse that size. What are they going to do? And I keep thinking they're going to show the, the cavalry is going to show up at any time. This is Washington, D.C. There's there's got to be helicopters and jets and, and all and, and soldiers all over the place. Right. There was with the B, with the BLM protests. They were all over the place. They had a looking like a movie up there. All it was soldiers. It was left unattended how is it not a hit job and i start thinking about back when i was on facebook right after the election in 2016 i posted a link to the goodreads uh link for sinclair lewis's book it can't happen here do you know Mm -hmm. that okay so that book uh is all about uh a demagogue elect is from 1935 a demagogue elected president of the united states and after fomenting fear and promising drastic economic and social reforms while promoting a return to patriotism and traditional values after the election uh he takes complete control of the government imposes totalitarian rule with a ruthless paramilitary force. Now, we were just saying, when we would post things like that back in 2016, we were overreacting, yeah, oh, we're being right. a radical, and, and we are here, here we are. And right now we have the biggest underreaction to the situation, I believe. Scott, this is my dissonance. First and foremost, the people who died. Folks are saying, well, what if they were black? Oh, you just know that it would, okay. I want to take it a step further. Let's pretend that all of those people were not only foreign, but Muslim, mm-hmm. wearing hijab and everything else. The person who shot, who, who, who killed the first one would be lauded as a hero, and we would be dancing in the streets over the death of some young Saudi woman. Mm-hmm. Okay, These white people who did the very same thing came to the very same fate, a few of them anyway. You know, there's there's the first woman who died. Our white supremacy, our conditioning, forces us to double think how we categorize that death. Now, let's really put it side by side. We have some Saudis coming in to take over the Capitol. A woman dies. Yay. We, 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 we uh, got got rid of the insurgents or whatever, you know, casualties of war. Okay, everybody's white as it happened in reality. And I'm not saying that we need to be dancing in the streets because I don't celebrate anyone's death. What I'm saying is the whiteness of it all mm-hmm. has really forced us to come face to face with the levels of the conditioning and the truth that white people can get away with damn near anything, okay? They just walked out. 
it's triggering for me because that happens, Scott, on every single level. Think about all of the folks who, you know, were killed, put in jail, got fired from jobs doing the same thing that the white people did and that the white people get away with on a regular basis. This on this scale has created a collective trauma that I feel that is almost beyond what I can deal with. I think I'm pretty good at keeping positive spirits and 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 keeping my energy right, but this has been the biggest challenge to that in a while, and we are only a, a few days into 2021. Just for everyone listening, we're recording this a day early. Shout out to Radar. Radar is gonna go uh, go see the doctor and get fixed. He's going he's going to the uh, the auto shop to get his oil <laughs> changed this week. Um, so we're recording this on Sunday. Um, J- uh, January 10th. Next time we get behind the mics, it's going to be a very different world. So um, just wanted to acknowledge that for the people. Um, <clears throat> you know, and the other dissonance is Congress and the Senate has proven that they cannot help us. Okay, we, we can talk about intent. We can talk about who's blocking what legislation and X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day, you have a body of people who is not helping the black, the poor black people. It's not helping the folks, the, po- the artists, the musicians out here struggling. And as we saw, you know, back to Malcolm X, chickens come home to roost. They weren't helping all of those people, that, that monster that they created either. So when I watch that on TV, I'm thinking, of course, this is happening. And thank goodness I'm at home. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to it's hard for my my heart to go out to those people in the government because they were complicit in this every day. They should have been up there trying to get this man out of office. And this is is this is and this is what's happened. You know, they better hope that all those white people learn how to not be racist. They better hope that we as a people don't unite and really hold them accountable. And I'm not saying that I subscribe to storming the Capitol like the like what happened. I'm saying I am a believer in cause and effect. You know, I've talked about on this uh, podcast before, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, when we talk about um, Myoho, we're talking about the mystic law of cause and effect. And, and, you know, even Malcolm X spoke to that in that little clip. This is the effect of what y'all cause. So what do y'all want me to do? Go in and call the uh, federal FBI hotline on who broke the law. If I call that hotline, I'm telling them arrest Mitch McConnell right now. You know, I'm telling them to arrest Ted Cruz right now. So I hope that um, and and what I was thinking of before, a lot this week I have uh, my mind has gone back to the recording to the opus that we did following the George Floyd protests Mm -hmm. when we talked about. Um, our town, you know, mm-hmm. the Aaron Copeland, how could, you know, this couldn't possibly happen here. Well, with the George Floyd protests, we saw it happen a little bit of everywhere. And last week, we even saw it manifest in the Capitol building. So I hope that they feel unsafe. I hope every one of those senators and Congress people feels unsafe because now they understand the urgency behind what we have to do. <sighs> but the the again, like I said, the the collective trauma of it all. Because what if what what could it be on inauguration day? You you know it just can't go just quietly. And with every election being damn near fifty fifty, you know, shout out to Georgia turning blue. That's great, but by by the by the hair of a frog's titty, mm-hmm. you know, I mean barely. And I think we're going to see that for the next little while. Everything that we vote for is going to be split down that middle. And is it? There are just some. There's there's some ugly days. Coming to here, there's some ugly days.
So in closing, I'm sorry, I don't have anything else to add. I don't, you know, one thing that I wanted to ask, you know, a few weeks ago, you just very, you know, matter of factly said, oh, nothing, nothing can surprise me at this point. Did this qualify? Well, were you like, oh, this is another thing or, or did this get your attention? No, this got my attention. Mm -hmm, I bet it did. You know, a lot of y'all working on these plantations and this is not to you specifically Scott this is to the people a lot of y'all working on these plantations for 40 hours a week you can't even speak up to your boss because you're scared to lose that little bit of a, a paycheck crumbs that they have allowed in this system to offer you for two weeks or twice a month or whatever for you to survive. You know, you can't speak up or whatever because you have to maintain that. As we saw last week, there are a lot of folks out there on the wrong side of history that are willing to risk it all, ready to give it up. People who will lose their life over what is, is happening. I am very confident and very grateful in how I know history is going to paint me, how it could paint you, Scott, the work that we do. There is no sitting on the sidelines anymore. I am afraid that it will turn violent on a broader scale, even if it doesn't. I hope everyone listening can understand and really ask themselves, what can I do to push? Because they are going to push. Our choices are to push back or to fall over. See you next week, hopefully.